This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Praxis is proud to sponsor this episode of the podcast. Praxis is about living the life you want, living on your own terms, getting off the conveyor belt. What does that mean specifically? If you're a young person, high school, college age, you've kind of been taught that there's a conveyor belt. You sit down, you shut up, you obey the rules, you get good grades, and you'll be moved along and then eventually handed a ticket to a job and a house and two and a half kids and a bunch of debt. That's bull crap. You need to create your own life. You need to decide what you want. Look at the opportunities around us that are more plentiful than has ever existed in the history of mankind. And you need to get out and start exploring and experimenting. Stop doing things you hate. If you're bored in the classroom, if it's not bringing you any joy, get out. Engage with the world. Try some things. If you get accepted into practice, Praxis is a highly competitive, highly competitive program. But if you get accepted in, we will place you with an entrepreneur at a growing dynamic business where you'll be working 30 hours a week. At the same time, you'll be going through a series of professional development challenges to meet your goals that you've set out. You start the program and say, here's what I want at the end. Here are the tangible outcomes. I want a job offer. I want to launch an online business. I want to whatever it might be. We take that and use that as our measuring stick to decide whether we're doing our job. Our advisors work with you to reach those goals. They help you. They push you. They challenge you like a fitness trainer would. But ultimately, you're the one in the driver's seat. We provide you with an amazing curriculum, resources on everything from liberal arts topics like economics and history to business, entrepreneurship, life skills, and every, you know digital branding, building a website. It is intense, but it will change your life discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. I am speaking today with a man who makes me painfully aware of the inferior quality of my coffee. Today we have Chuck Grimmett joining us on the show. Chuck, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing well, Isaac. How are you? Good. I feel like, you know that, what is the movie? As Good As It Gets, where Jack Nicholson is like, you make me want to be a better man. Yeah, I feel like when I'm with you, you make me you make me want to drink a better coffee. You know, like any, oh, any food I'm eating, anything I'm consuming, I feel like it's, I'm suddenly aware of its, you know, Walmart level quality in the presence of uh, foodies such as yourself. Well, you know, I have two modes when it comes to food. I'm either eating just for sustenance or I'm eating to really enjoy it. I, I can't really fall anywhere in the middle. So, you know, I, we talked what last year, I think a little bit about Soylent. Yes. And that's one of those things that, you know, I don't love the taste, but if I'm just pressed for time, I take a bottle of that 2.0, I pour in a little bit of iced coffee or espresso just to change the flavor a little bit. Give me some caffeine, power it down and keep going. Man, I am totally with you there. And it, you know, to me, it's most of the time eating is utility. And when you have kids and everything, those times are not very often. So, so I have this weird, I'm kind of forced in the in-between. I, I loved it when I could do Soylent, but it didn't, it didn't sit with my stomach very well after a while. And, uh, so I, I went off it, but now I just have this dilemma every breakfast and lunch. I just want 
to not be hungry, but I don't want to take the time to go make food and try to do all this stuff. And so I'm just like eating a can of tuna, eating whatever random, you know, nuts and things I can find. And it's never good, but it's more work than Soylent was, but it's not really much better in terms of the, you know, the enjoyment factor anyway, such as my horrible first world problems, I guess. <laughs> so, so Chuck, I want to talk about a lot of stuff because you are interested in a lot of stuff. And frankly, you're really good at a lot of stuff. If you were to, if someone asked you in a typical cocktail party, if you will, um, maybe you don't attend those, I don't know, but you, you know, you're at a, you're at a social event and someone says, what do you do? How do you answer that? You know, I try to read the person first, but if I'm, if it's just someone I don't know, the, the quick flippant answer is that I'm a problem solver. And then so and, every, yeah, every job and every, you know, little side gig that I have, it's all about finding creative solutions to interesting problems. And I'll, I'll, I'll of course tell them my day job is with a company called eResources and I'm a project manager and project architect and, you know, part time, uh, in that job, I'm also a web developer, but like I said, I'm, I think my core is that I, I find interesting problems and I try to solve them in a creative way. So if, if I'm this other person and I've just asked you and you've said you're a problem solver now, I don't necessarily know, Oh, you know, uh, I should introduce you to so-and-so, or I should see if you want to do some work for me because I don't yet know what you mean. So, so if I said, uh, Hey, I'm having some problems with my wife, we're fighting. You want to help me solve that? <laughs> <laughs> is is that within the realm of your problem solving capabilities or is it more narrow? I think at that point in time, I would, you know, I'd probably laugh a little bit and then say, I think we can probably try to solve that. Here's how. And then we'll, we'll dig down into exactly what kind of problems you're having with your wife. What is at the root of that? And then I'll, I'll probably give you an, a homework assignment. Go, you, you found these two things go take an hour and spend digging through what might be causing that and then come back with a couple of solutions. So, so you'd mean, truly I, be interested in, in almost any problem you would find like, yeah, let's, let's think about this. Let's dive in. There's nothing where you're like, Oh no, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. That's outside of my scope. Um, I'm not very interested in political problems, but I'm interested in helping people improve their lives. So, I mean, my expertise is primarily in technology. So I would, I'd say that upfront and tell people that I have a, I have a background in photography. I, I run a cooking blog. Um, I'm trying to get into data science right now, but you know, I, I, I fundamentally think that there are, if there are problems, there are things causing those problems and that those things are fundamentally solvable. If there was a problem, yo, Chuck G solved it. I just, I couldn't keep the, the hook while <laughs> Isaac revolves it. I couldn't keep it out of my head. I'm so glad that you jumped on board with that one. Um, okay. So, so you, you've got a lot of skills in coding, web development. Um, you know, you're into cooking and cocktails. Uh, data science is a new thing for you. Social media, photography, which was there something, I guess, were you always kind of a generalist interested in a lot of things and dabbling in a lot of things? Or did you start thinking, I'm going to become an expert in this? And then eventually you just realized you wanted to try lots of different things. Kind of, kind of walk me through the process of how you've 
how you've become a sort of generalist in, in the fields that you've chosen? Web development and photography started back in high school. And I, I actually got hired with my best friend to kind of run the website for the local public school district that I, I went to. I, was, I got interested back in seventh grade. And a couple people who ran the website there took notice. They had actually a small group of students who they had hired to run that, you know, back before my time, they were all getting ready to graduate. And my friend and I were coming up as freshmen. So they, you know, they gave us a bit of an interview. It was more of like a, a hands-on week long interview where they just threw tasks at us and said, you have this wall of books over here, you have the internet, you have a week, let's just see what you guys can come up with. So that, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't really know the first thing about web development back then, but like the guy told us, we had a wall of books. So we just, it was the middle of the summer. We had some spare time, went in there at eight o'clock every morning and just started digging away. And turns out that it was something that I was I was pretty good at. So we kept up the web development. I kind of shadowed someone who was working there, kept working on it. And I, my, my, my friend and I, we found out that we were a good pair because he's very good at design. I'm better at digging through some of the nuances of the code. And so we worked together to build those things and, uh, you know, fix any issues that came up. But then photography was a need that I saw that no one was filling at that time, you know, they, we were trying to keep the school district website up to date, but the photos were super stale. So I noticed that there was uh, an old camera lying around, an old digital camera. It wasn't that great, but it still worked. It was lying around. And I asked my boss, Hey, could I just take this for the day and go try to shoot some photos? And he said, Oh, sure. So I came, I shot some photos. They all sucked. They were terrible. Uh, I didn't really know how to use the camera, but like everything else, there was a book sitting on the shelf there about that camera. So I started digging through that, learning a little bit more, a little bit more. I eventually, you know, I got some good feedback from people on how to make the photos better. And then I ended up you know, buying better and better cameras and then, you know, getting into a little bit of a photography side business. I shot weddings for a little while. That's how I made money all throughout college. I either shot weddings or I shot sporting events and sold those photos to the college. Um, so that, that was a good time. And I, I learned, you know, that I, I, I think to answer your original question, I, I like digging into things at, you know, say one or two steps beyond what everyone else is doing to, you know, get a little bit ahead of everyone else and you know, try to run with that. But then I, I do not have any qualms about saying, you know what, I'm just not interested in this anymore and just dropping it right there yeah. and moving on to something else that's interesting. So the sunk cost fallacy uh, does not plague you very much. You know, I've, I've put so much time into being good at this. Dang it, I have to keep pursuing it now. Now I can never, I can never drop it. That doesn't bother you. That, that doesn't really bother me. I mean, when with anything, you're picking up new skills, you're learning things, even if you don't see the direct connection to something else, you're, you're likely going to take those skills that you learned and apply them to something you're going to do in the future anyway. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm actually losing anything there. It's just, 
I'm switching my primary income stream or my primary focus for the time being. You know, it's interesting when you when you described the way that you learned web development, the first thing I thought, you know, okay, so we went in here, we had all these resources, we learned how to do it. The first thought that came to my mind was not, oh, okay, now Chuck is someone who knows web development. It was, oh, Chuck is someone who knows how to learn anything because you were able to see, okay, here's this new thing. I can learn it. And you did, in fact, learn it. The thing that you learned is less important than the fact that you were able to learn it, uh, I think, in, in many ways. And that, that seems to have played out in, in the many other things that you've been interested in that, that we'll, we'll get into. But you, you mentioned a key word when you were talking about the web development thing. You said a key ingredient to mastering something or just learning something at a basic level. You said we had spare time. Now, how do you go about making sure you have spare time? Because learning something totally new requires a different, not just time, but time where your mind is not preoccupied. So if you become a master at, let's say, photography, and that's your bread and butter, that's your income, that's your craft, and then you want to go learn to actually make bread and butter, <laughs> become a, you know, a, a chef or not, a, you know, not necessarily professionally, but get into making food and things. You have to have spare time, time that you feel fine playing around with something that has nothing to do with your income stream or your main, you know, sort of vocation at the time. How do you create craft a life that allows you continually to have spare time to experiment with new things that may or may not end up being relevant in the long term. You know, I, I think that if you, you make it a priority, you're going to find a way to make it happen. And it's, this varies for everyone. For me, it's, you know, I have a, a regular nine to five job. My hours are pretty flexible there, but I try to stay on my day job from nine to five and give them all my attention. It's, it's a pretty demanding job. Um, but I like to, I really like to you know, spend some time after work or before work digging into new things. Um, we have a lot of time on the weekends. I realize that you know, people with families, it's a little bit different uh, because you know, if they, if you have children, you know, there's definitely a a lot of time you have to spend with your children, with your family. Um, I'm married, so my, you know, I do definitely do spend a lot of time hanging out with my wife. You know, building our relationship, but there's, I, I found for me, I actually learn really well late at night. So I tend to be a bit of a night owl. Uh, I don't necessarily go to bed at reasonable hours, but say like after 10 PM, something just switches in my brain. And I, that's when I do you know, some of my most interesting learning, uh, is late at night. It and I, I found some, you know, for some people you, learn better in the morning. So if you get up, say an hour or two before work, um, you're not going to, you're not really going to miss that sleep, but it's going to pay off and benefits if you do that for a couple of weeks straight, um, learning a new skill. And you know, you will be amazed at how much you can learn in just one hour. I mean, think of, let's say like, think of spring cleaning. Everyone hates it. It really sucks to clean the bathroom. But once you start cleaning the bathroom, it really only takes 10 minutes and you're, boom, you're done, right? I think learning new skills is pretty similar to that. You can dig into the basics and fundamentals within an hour. And then the, I think the real key is how you take those things and apply them. 
you know, have some really quick focus learning for one hour, take those things, uh, then come up with a little project to apply what you learned. I, I'm really against the idea that you have to, you know, you have to read five books on a subject and you have to really get into it and learn the nuance or else you can't do anything. I like to spend an hour learning something. I make just a tiny little project work on it for a couple days and you know I, I'm learning new things the whole time that project's going but at the end after a couple days I feel like I've actually learned something I've accomplished something I have a better understanding uh, than just two days before when I had this idea and then I really know where to go from there I know where to look for the next steps what what's an example of something where you spend an hour learning about it and then you gave yourself a project um, actually just recently I, I tried to get into, like I said earlier, try to get into some data science and I, I have a background in mathematics. So the math there is not very difficult for me, but, um, br you know, bridging the statistics with say like crunching through that with programming and then taking that and visualizing it is something that I hadn't had any experience in. So and I also don't know a lot about sports. I don't watch sports on a regular basis. I know how to photograph them, but that's very different from really understanding how the game's played. So I, I heard a lot about Steph Curry, and so I decided, you know what, I'm going to look up this guy's stats and see if I can learn anything from these stats. I, would, I was looking into you know, different kinds of stats earlier, and then I thought, well, all right, let's pull up the stats.mba.com. Let's go to some third-party sites. So I, you know, I compared him to you know, some of the other top three-point shooters in the NBA and was trying to see, like, what really sets this guy apart? Why is he in the news so much? What's making his game so different? And I, you know, after, I think it was basically just an afternoon, I created some pretty interesting graphs that showed the, you know, how many shots Steph Curry takes compared to everyone else in the NBA and how his percentage isn't, isn't really radically different than the other top three pointer shooters. He's just, he seems to be shooting so much more than anyone else. And he's done that consistently for the past three years. It really, it, at the beginning of his career, that wasn't the case. It started after he had his injury in 2012 and then he came back to the 2013 season. I love, uh, I love that that post it's on chuckgrimmett.com um you can go find the the graph and and some of the analysis there and uh what i love about it i remember when you shared it it was hey i don't really know anything about sports um but i want to i wanted to have some project to practice my you know statistics and and you know graphically representing statistics so people who know a lot about sports you know does this pass the smell test tell me what you think I, it's such a cool approach to take something as your subject that you don't know a lot about, that you don't have strong opinions about, and to graph it out and then ask people who do, because of course there are Steph Curry haters and people who love Steph Curry and people, everyone's got an opinion on it, and to say, what do you guys think? How does this look to you? Um, you seem very, very good at taking feedback and not, and not holding anything precious so that you get offended um, if people say, oh, you could improve this, you could improve that. Is that something that you've cultivated consciously, that sort of um, you know, going to the crowd or seeking feedback or being uh, really inclusive in your learning process? Or is that just natural, something that you've always sort of done without thinking about? 
Um, it's it's not natural at all. Um, I I grew up as an only child, and so you know the only feedback I ever really got was I would have to you know ask my parents. I'd have to ask other family members. I I have a few cousins my age, but not very much. So I was I was always surrounded by people much older than me, um, and you know sometimes they're they don't really want to give someone younger than them feedback so they don't hurt their feelings, and um, so. I, I guess I learned in high school that one of a fundamental part of learning is that you have to share your ideas and get feedback on them. And that was really hard for me at first. I mean, I, to be honest, I, I took things way too personally. And now, I mean, I, with something like this data science project, it's, it's something I'm learning. It's pretty low cost. I, it's not like people are ruining my income by telling me that I don't understand this, I don't understand this, I don't understand this. Um, so I, and now I've, I've taken those as opportunities to say, whoa, you know, you're right. I actually don't understand this. You know, can you give me five minutes and uh, explain it to me? Or can you point me to somewhere great that I could learn about this? And most of the time, even if people, you know, are coming off in kind of a, a jerky way, as soon as you go back to them and say, "Hey, you know, thanks for your input. Can you, can you, tell me a little bit more about this? Can you show me where to learn this?" Then they open up, and they're some of the nicest people we ever meet. Hmm. And with with that post, you know, some people came out of the woodwork that I hadn't talked to in, you know, probably five years, and I, I was kind of surprised to see that they were just commenting on something I threw on Facebook. But, you know, that that was a great way to re-engage with some of them too. You know, dig into what they're currently doing right now because um, I you know if I haven't kept up with them for five years I don't really know and just you know rekindle some of those relationships too it, it's so funny that you mentioned that um, every once in a while if I post something that is not that's a little bit atypical for the type of thing I post uh, there'll always be people that I've never seen before that will just go nuts. I posted something a couple of weeks ago about um, an article about mapping the, or, you know, the, the metaphor of the brain as a computer, and that's how that is an insufficient metaphor. And I thought it was really interesting. And I, I'm, I'm pretty interested in artificial intelligence and that stuff, but I'm no expert, so I usually don't say much about it or post anything about it. So I posted it, and there was just all these engineering and computer science people having this big raging debate on this post. And uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. These people never comment on anything that I post normally. Um, so it's kind of fun. You know, if you go outside of your your typical zone, you probably you probably didn't know all the sports fans lurking out there. Yeah, there were, there were a couple of economists that I had absolutely no idea they were super into sports. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. So um, – you know, it almost reminds me of like when you learn a new word and then you start to hear it everywhere and you're like, I never used to hear this word anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, you oh, know, yeah. somehow your your radar wasn't tuned. Who knows? Maybe they were posting about sports all this time, but you, you didn't notice because you're not into sports. And now all of a sudden. Um, OK, so you you cure your own meats, you make your own mayonnaise, you're you're <laughs> you're like an artisan, you know, I don't know, cook, food preparer, cocktail maker. How did that get started? When did and and your website, by the way, cook uh, cooklikechuck.com. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. cooklikechuck.com. Cooklikechuck.com. I, I encourage everybody to go check it out. It's not only just great little simple recipes for drinks and food, 
great pictures that accompany all of them. Everything's laid out in a way that's very simple. Here are the ingredients you'll need. Here's a couple things, you know, variations on it. It's all, it's very well designed. It's very accessible, even though the stuff uh, is, is really, you know, sort of, like I said, artisan, um, really good stuff. So how did the cooking thing start? How did, how did Cook Like Chuck get launched? Um, so I, I'll explain how the cooking got started and then much later Cook Like Chuck got started. So uh, I, I started learning to cook when I had my first internship, uh, my, my second year of college. Uh, I had an internship at Fee. Uh, and, you know, fee is absolutely great, but they, they only really paid you a small living stipend. So I had to get creative about what I was cooking in the weekends. And so I, you know, I just started looking around at some cooking sites. I knew that I liked certain things and I just, you know, I was living with someone who had a decently stocked kitchen. So I experimented there, learned you know, a little bit, I threw a lot of crappy food away. Um, and then th that was really kind of the necessity first. And then I realized that, oh man, you can make some stuff that is really tasty. And so like, why do I like this? Why is this tasty? What goes into preparing it? And so that just grew and grew and grew over time. Uh, when I had some free time in college, I liked to, you know, cook for some of my friends on the weekends. And then, when, when I took my first full-time job after college and I was working for the Foundation for Economic Education, I, you know, that's, I, I was working on the computer all day, every day. And that's, that's still what I do. I, you know, I don't, I, my job is not fundamentally different these days, even though I don't work for fee anymore. But that means that when I'm done at the end of the day, I just don't want to look at a screen anymore. I want to do something else. And some of my release there is getting into the kitchen and creating something really cool. There's something really nice about working with your hands and doing something, create, taking a bunch of disparate products and creating something really delicious for you and your family and friends out of that. So, um, you, you began cooking as a, as a sort of an unwinding activity, a, a cathartic, relaxing activity, uh, obviously also to make good food, but to, to keep you off of screens, when did it m take the turn of, I want to share this with others. I want to make a website. I want to talk about it. I want to give tips. That's something that, um, I think it's a beautiful part of our current culture. The, the ease with which people can share things has created this culture where people share everything. People try something new and then they, they share with not everything. I mean, it's still a small percentage of people who do this, but many people, they share with others how they did it. Now there are some people who are sort of, you know, criticize that and <laughs> say, I don't, I don't care. You don't, you know, you don't, so what you learned how to do X doesn't mean you need to share it with the world. But, but what, what was it that made you decide I don't want this just to be something for me. I actually, I want to talk about it and I want to write about it and I want to see if, if maybe other people can find some value in it. So I, I've had a blog since all the way back since high school, different kinds of blogs. And oh, you were an early, uh, you were a first mover that, yeah, that was mostly because we, my best friend and I learned web technologies and we're like, Hey, like, why don't we post some tips here and there about doing these things? So we actually had, I think, between the two of us, three different websites, you know, one for each of us and then one that we collaborated on. They're not really on the internet anymore. We've taken them down. Um, but then I had, I had one weekend where 
I start I decided to start up my own personal blog, and that it got some readers. You know, it was like you said, kind of a first mover thing. People are interested when you throw something out there, and that that kind of gets um, really contagious. You know, you you put something out there once, you get some feedback on it, and then all of a sudden you want to post about everything you know. I mean, it gets it, you just get really fired up about it. So I was I was in Boston uh, visiting my best friend Sean. And my wife Amanda was there, and I, I said, "Hey, you know, like a lot of people have been asking me about what I'm cooking. If they, you know, they come over visit, I make something for them. They want me to share my recipes." Um, and I said, "I, I was thinking about maybe starting a blog. What do you guys think?" And they, they were just super supportive. Um, in fact, I remember sitting on couch at my friend's house in Boston. I bought the Cook Like Chuck domain name. They had to talk me into it. I, I was considering other domain names. But they, they said, isn't, you know, isn't buying really... a domain name like a so like such an exciting process? <laughs> I don't oh, know yeah. why. I, oh yeah. If I if I didn't have the ability to control myself, I think I would just buy domain names all day. <laughs> I find I'm always like every time I have an idea, oh my gosh, I bought the domain name. Now it's now it's a possibility, even though I don't do anything with most of them. Yeah, they're buying a domain name is really cool. I think you know I think one of the interesting pieces about that is that you need to take the momentum that you have when you're excited about something and just throw that forward. So using services that are, make it easy to buy domain names and easy to set up a website, I think that's really key. I actually, uh, I bought the domain name and then I think I spent the rest of the night with my friend Sean just like setting up the bare bones of that site. It was originally on Tumblr. I actually trashed the Tumblr version because I didn't like it and built my own WordPress version a little later. But... Um, is you know this really ties into the the learning stuff we we're talking about a little earlier. When you have that idea for something you want to learn, look at your calendar and find the next available spot, preferably right now if you can move things out of the way. Spend an hour, learn some of the basics, and really capture that momentum. If you don't capture that momentum, you might never have that momentum again, and you might you might pass that up. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that too. I, that's, that's really, you know, I, I don't know if it's just a lack of discipline on my part, but that's really the only way I can get things done. I mean, even if it's as simple as an article, if I have an idea for something I want to write about and I just, and I write down an outline of the idea and then save it as a draft for later, it almost never gets finished. I have to just write the, the whole thing in that moment you know, just to seize on that or else it's hard to recapture that moment where you, where you see the possibility in this thing. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so cook like Chuck has been live for how long now? Uh, let's see. It's been just about a year now, I think. And what has been um, your most popular post? My most popular post is a post on kombucha. Your kombucha is that fermented tea type stuff. I started making it about two years ago. And then wait, wait, rest... is that like where you keep it in the house and it has the giant scoby that grows and yes. wants to take over your whole house if you don't keep, you know, reducing it? Yes, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. It's an is... alien life form, I'm convinced. So it's so, it is. It's... So your post about kombucha, what made it so popular? Well, I I decided to take a year. I, so I've been experimenting with that stuff for over a year. And like I, when I, when I find something like that, I just, 
I'll find out how to make the basic kombucha. I made a couple batches of that, and I was like, oh, you know, this is okay, but we got to make it better. So I started doing a lot of different experiments about how to make it better, and I a year later, I decided to write up everything that I'd learned. It was a pretty big post, and some of it was technical, some of it was not. So I wrote it up, uh, put it on Reddit, and it just, just kind of went crazy on the r slash kombucha subreddit. And even today, I, I probably get five to ten people still a year later every day coming just for that post. There's a there's a kombucha subreddit. Oh man, there's there's subreddits for everything. I'm I'm, ju- I'm trying to get into Reddit. I've tried a couple times. I've had failed attempts over the last few years. I'm I'm trying to give it a real go this time. Um, and I I followed like 30 subreddits that seemed interesting and that seemed to make a big difference before I was just sort of going to the Reddit homepage and trying to understand what the value was. But yeah, the the Reddit homepage is a little rough. I I like getting into individual subreddits that you're interested in and then contributing right away. So commenting, asking questions, you can really find some interesting people. I actually, I've met people in person from various subreddits. Like in fact, the, the kombucha one, a guy messaged me on Reddit and said, Hey, I saw this post. Um, you know, you mentioned elsewhere in your blog that you live in New York. Um, good. Do you have any extra scobies? I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Like where, where can we meet? So we, I met this guy, you know, down on (laughs) like a back alley scoby exchange. (laughs) We actually just went to a bar and I, he, I didn't charge him for it, but he, he bought me some beer. turns out he's a, he's a beer distributor. He knows, you know, Everything that you can know about beer, he brews his own stuff. We had really great conversation. I learned some cool stuff about him. I still keep in touch with him here and there. That's that's so cool. I mean, that's that's such a great microcosm of the world we're in, and actually a great example of why one of the reasons why it is valuable to share what you're doing. Not because you think you know what you're doing is so wonderful, everyone needs to know, but as this open invitation for others who you might be interested in meeting. Um, you know, a way to, to connect with each other. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's a great, that's a great example. So, okay. I got to ask you, I've seen you post on, on Facebook about this and I, I came across it on uh, cook like Chuck. What is a sous vide? Am I pronounce, pronouncing that right? You are pronouncing correctly. A sous vide is a, it's essentially a water circulator. So it's, it's this little device that has a heating element in it and has a thermometer you put it down in a water bath so you can either take a big pot or I have you know, a, a special big plastic tub that I use. And you can you put it onto a specific temperature and then you vacuum seal meat, vegetables, whatever, and you drop it down in there and let it cook for a couple hours. And so the, the benefit of this method is that, well, let's say you're going to cook a steak. You throw it on the grill or you use it or use a cast iron skillet, it's cold out of the fridge, it takes a while for the meat in the center to come up to temperature. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I like my steak rare to medium rare. So I usually like it around 128 degrees. So that it takes a little bit to get that up to the right temperature on the grill or in the cast iron skillet. And then you cut into it and it turns out that the outside is kind of overcooked and the inside is not Mm. cooked enough. Mm. You get that really weird gray band when you cut into it, both a sous vide, you can put it in he- in that thing, cook it exactly to 128 degrees. The water is 128 degrees, so it's impossible to cook 
the meat at any higher temperature. So if you leave it in there for three, four hours, it will cook all the way through to the center and you pull it out, quickly sear it so that you don't get that gray band at all and you cut into it and it's perfect, just like butter. That's amazing. I almost, what if you, could you just use a hot tub? <laughs> throw a bunch of vacuum sealed meat into a hot tub at 185 uh, you could <laughs> except that the the temperature control in the hot tub is not that great and i can't think of anything besides maybe corn that i would want cooked at 185 degrees i mean pork you probably want pork around 140 i like beef around you know say 128 that's, to 132 that seems really low and it cooks in just two three hours yes that's amazing because a uh if you have an oven set that low uh, for you know some ribs or something, you're talking six, seven hours, right? Yes, that's because uh, water is much more dense than air, and so you can transfer heat a lot more efficiently via water than in the air. In fact, you know this by you stick your hand in a 200-degree oven, you can keep it there for two, three minutes, and you're going to be fine, mm, right? Yeah. You stick your hand in 200-degree waters, you got third-degree burns. That is really interesting that I'd never, I'd never really made that connection. My, my lack of physics knowledge, the, the density that makes so much sense. Um, so the difference between a sous vide and a, and say a slow cooker is the meat itself is not actually immersed in the water or gravy or sauce or whatever it might be, uh, because it's vacuum sealed. Is, is that, does that make it less juicy because it doesn't have things seeping into it or does it make it more juicy because it keeps things from leaking out of it? How does it compare? Um, so I think that the, the meat that I cook is always very juicy coming out of the sous vide, but there's, there's a fundamental difference between the sous vide and a slow cooker. And that is mostly the temperature control on the slow cooker. Uh, you could very easily vacuum seal something, throw it in water, inside the slow cooker and get a similar result, but it won't be exact because unless you have a really high-end slow cooker, it doesn't have very good temperature control. I think low on a slow cooker is somewhere around, you know, 165, whereas high on a slow cooker, you know, you're pushing 190 to 200 degrees. Mm. Um, and that's, that. let's say, if you cook a steak to 200 degrees, it's going to be absolute weather. You know, mm. it's, it's going to be inedible. So... You, you probably don't want to do that, um, though I will say you usually use them for different things, right? So in a slow cooker, you want, to throw, um, you want to throw a roast in there with a bunch of vegetables. You're, the, the great thing about the slow cooker is that you know, it keeps it at a low temperature enough to kill the other bacteria in there, and it, it cooks everything down to make a nice stew, and you're losing a lot of the liquid due to evaporation. And so at the end of the day, you come in there, it's, it's done. It's great. I, we actually have a slow cooker. I still use it quite a bit. I, I don't see them as, um, substitutable goods. I see them as complimentary okay. goods. So I, I have a friend who, um, he makes excellent food all the time. Uh, and he, he was making fun of us for, <laughs> for using our slow cooker. Is it like, is it considered like gauche? Is that like a non-classy way to prepare food? You know, um, I, I just see all these different things as a tool and the slow cooker is the best for some things and the sous vide is best for other things. The oven's best for some things. 
Um, I'm not going to look down on people using the slow cooker. <laughs> I mean, I mean, good for you for cooking your own stuff instead of just going to McDonald's every day. Well, it's it's my wife. I shouldn't take the credit. I <laughs> I hardly ever hardly ever make food. I'm the grill master, which means I'm the one who burns absolutely everything uh, <laughs> on the grill because. Dang it, it is so hard to control the temperature. Once you get any drippings of grease falling on that propane flame, then the flames oh, yeah. just go crazy. There's nothing you can do to, to at least that I've found, to uh, to keep it from getting too hot. Well, what you could do is if you have a large grill, uh, only turn on one side and then cook on the other side once it comes up to temperature. Oh, interesting. So I, I usually often, uh, I usually only turn on one side, but I always cook on that side. <laughs> so I guess it's yeah, sort so of like, defeats you it. Know, cook, you know, turn on that side, let it come up to temperature, but then cook on the other side once you know your grill's sitting at 400 degrees. That's a great idea. This has already been highly educational. Um, so let me ask you about cooking you know, you, you've, you've said it's, it's this really enjoyable experience for you, um, that is sort of cathartic, but I know because you, you're interested in learning and getting good at it, that there are certainly probably moments of frustration. So what's more frustrating coding or cooking and, and which one sort of makes you prouder when you get it right? Like what's the frustration to reward ratio? Uh, it it depends on the mindset that I'm in. You know, some days when I've had a long day and I'm cooking something that I think is a sure shot and it, you know, it's absolutely terrible. That's pretty demoralizing. Um, and then other days when, when I'm coding and I just can't figure out a bug that I've encountered, that's pretty demoralizing too. Um, but the, let's, let's look at the upsides of each with the up, the upside for coding is that. I created something that no one else has ever created before in the exact same way, and that just gives me a you know a real rush. Um, it's super cool to do that. But then, with making something delicious, I get to see the satisfaction on my friends and family's faces when they eat it, and you know I get to enjoy that myself and then share that with the world. So, but both are. Both are really good. I, I do both in very different mindsets. Um, I can't be in the mood to cook and then just go straight to code, or I can't be in the mood for coding, go straight to cooking. You know, one of the things that people find interesting about me is that I'm very precise when it comes to coding, mathematics, statistics, things like that. But I hate precision in cooking unless it comes to the like the temperature and the sous vide. So like baking, I can't stand it because you're just measuring stuff. <laughs> That's that's really interesting. So you have a much more open, experimental, throw in a dash of this, let's see what happens, let's try this. Uh, why, do, why do you think that is? Why do you think you're able to have different mindsets approaching those different tasks? Uh, I think it's it's different kind of creativity. With creativity and coding, it's very banded creativity. You can only be creative within certain constraints of the framework. So you're you know it's much more, it's, it's almost like solving a logic problem all day long, hmm. right? Whereas when you're cooking, you're just, you're, you're a lot more open to your whims of what tastes good, what you're in the mood for that day, what you have in your fridge and just coming up with something. Boom. Do you find your, so you've been interested in, um, you know, sort of, uh, statistics. I know you're interested in database decision-making, um, as a way to sort of improve your life and, and analyze what you're doing and using data to, to help inform your decisions. Does that come into play 
with cooking at all? Do you apply any data or statistics? Are you doing measurements or is that, is that that kind of precision that you're talking about that you sort of don't bring to the table when you're, when it comes to cooking? Uh, it depends on what I'm doing. Uh, like when I'm doing experiments with kombucha and stuff like that, um, I, you know, I get slipped more down into like a, a science based approach. And then especially with coffee too, what, one of the things I've gotten into just this year is espresso and it's, there's a lot of variables in espresso. And if you just wing it, you're, you're going to be drinking some crap. So I, I, almost by necessity because I really want good espresso and I've had good espresso and know what it is. And I, I want to try to achieve that. I've gotten a lot more methodical about how I go about doing that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You, okay. So you have a podcast now, is that right? Yeah. Snack time. Snack time. In podcast. Fact, uh, we will only have two episodes out, but last night we recorded another episode. So that should be out either later today or tomorrow. Uh, we have a couple more in the works that we are scripting. So I I went and listened to just a, a small part of one of the episodes just before we got on here. Um, uh, did you uh, the one on recycling or the one on? Um... Yeah, the one on recycling, which uh, okay. I was gonna I was gonna get into a vigorous debate with you about um, the efficiency <laughs> of recycling, but we'll hold we'll hold that off. Um, okay. Because <laughs> I st- I actually didn't finish listening to it. So the but when the show started. You go off on this little, uh, like lecture, little tangent about tangent sounds like a negative word. I don't mean it that way at all. You, you, you kind of just ex- go on, um, this exposition on cocoa, chocolate, and then on carrots. Oh, yeah, chocolate. It, did you and just carrots, know yeah. that? Or did you study specifically and prepare to talk about that on the show? I knew that about chocolate because just a couple weeks before, uh, Amanda and I toured a chocolate factory and it was fascinating. And so I, where I'm actually in the process of writing a script for a whole show just on how chocolate's made and how it's processed. Hmm. Um, but I, so I have a, I have a pretty good memory compared to some of the people I know around me in terms of recall and whatnot. And um, when I'm, when something fascinates me, it just, it just sticks in my head. So the, the stuff on chocolate, the stuff on carrots, I love carrots. It's one of my, one of my favorite root vegetables. So I, I, I knew that stuff at that time. And that was, uh, that was immediately when I thought, okay, this is, this is, uh, th- this is the, that's what made me say that I was feeling bad about the kind of <laughs> coffee I was drinking because when you start the show and you say, Oh, I'm eating some chocolate. And then you just go off on this thing about the different ways that chocolate is prepared, the, the sourcing of the chocolate, where it comes from all this stuff. I thought, man, this guy, if he saw, if he saw what I was eating, who knows what he would say. um that's that's so interesting though that you have discovered about yourself that you have this ability things that interest you just stick uh in your memory have you consciously cultivated that in some way or have you just sort of recognized that and and figured out ways to use that to your advantage or is it something you just don't really think about um i i've recognized it and you kind of learned how it comes about and how i can use it um, I haven't really found any way to at least teach other people how to like improve their memory. I, I've read a couple books on like the the memorization tricks and memory palaces and stuff like that, um, and I've tried them, but they just they don't really work for me. I it's hard for me to explain how and why I can 
you know, see something like I, I remember, you know, addresses from some of my friends' houses in high school, if just because they, they told me once and I was going over there to visit them, stuff like that. I, I even remember other people's passwords from high schools. I, most of my family's social security numbers, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so I feel like it would almost be, it would almost be a cruel joke if you wrote a book about how to, how to remember things because you just remember things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wish that I could teach other people how to, you know, like pay attention to detail and remember fine things like that. But to be honest, I, I don't know how I do it. I know how I can, like, if there's something that's just on the tip of my tongue, I have a okay understanding about the things that I can do to recall that, but I don't think it'd work for anyone else. It's just, I figured out that this is what works for me. And so I employ it. So tell me, give me a, is there something you can give me an example of where you have, um, moving back to sort of the improving your life and database decision-making where you have taken some, some data and it's helped you improve your life in some way that you don't think you would have been able to otherwise without, without sort of digging into, into the data. Um, let's see. I think my sleep is a big thing that once I, once I was out of college, I started taking sleep a lot more seriously. Like I know that I said that I go to bed some obscene hour, but I still try to get, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep a night. And I think that's really improved my, you know, my mood and my ability to think when I get up in the morning. So I, I've had a Fitbit since they first came out. And I think I had the, the first version that they had out that would allow sleep tracking. Um, so every night I was wearing my, my Fitbit to bed and looking at my sleep and trying to see what was affecting my sleep. And now I switched to a Withings watch. And, but I have, you know, I think data since 2011 on my sleep pattern and sleep activity. So I, I started noticing correlations like, um, what happens when I drink, what happens when I read at night, what happens when I read on an iPad versus just a regular book? Um, what happens when I exercise regularly? What happens when I eat certain things before I go to bed? And so, uh, you know, I've kind of what, developed what, what a, were the major findings. Now I'm, I'm totally intrigued by these questions. Well, I, I have a, like I have some digestion issues and I, so I have constant heartburn. So, um, I noticed that my heartburn, well, I, one, I sleep better when I don't have heartburn at night, of course. So how can I change my habits to, you know, have less heartburn at night? And I found that, uh, drinking kefir or kefir, however you pronounce it, that fermented milk stuff, mm-hmm. um, right before I go to bed really like kills my heartburn for most of the night. I might have a little bit when I get up in the morning, but it allows me to sleep, you know, a little sounder, a little better. Um, so I, I've started drinking that every night. I make that at home here every day too. Uh, another big thing is that, and I, I don't know if this was necessarily from my data collection, but it was at least a correlation that I started digging into. Um, I, I slept really poorly in the summer when we had fans going. I was thinking, like, what is this? Because, like, the white noise doesn't really bother me, stuff like that. I found that I don't really like stuff blowing on my ears. 
So I would always like pull up the covers over my ears at night, but then it's in the summer, it's hot. You don't really want to <laughs> sleep with stuff over your ears. So um, I thought, well, how can I solve this? I, I bought a sleeping mask that actually covers my ears as well. And oh man, that's made a world of difference because now there's nothing blowing in my ears at night that's bothering me. Um, and you know, it shuts out some extra sound. It shuts out a lot of light. And I, I've slept so much better since I bought that sleeping mask. Did, I think it's been like three or four years now that I've had this. Did you find anything about reading on an iPad versus reading in a book? Uh, yeah. So I have an older iPad. And so it, it doesn't do that cool night shift stuff like the new one does, which it you know switches the light spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you know I, I know the science is still out there on the light spectrum stuff, so I'm not going to make any claims there. But... I will say that when I'm reading on an iPad, I'm much more likely to get distracted by other things and just start, you know, my, let my mind just go crazy, going down rabbit trails, thinking new things. Like I said, I'm, I think and work really well late at night. So in order to wind down, instead of reading on the iPad where I can get distracted, I like to read either on my Kindle, which has absolutely nothing else, or in a physical book. Because, you know, I, I think the, the light thing is probably one of the factors of consideration. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's really hard to say for sure whether that blue light affects me. But I will say that by just focusing on one thing, and I will say what I read before I go to bed is primarily fiction. So I'm just I'm reading a good story. I have a bunch of different collections of short stories that I read. Um, I have some sci-fi that I read, but I'm I'm not trying to think of a work problem or a side project problem that I am uh, trying to solve. So my my mind's not going crazy. It just allows me to wind down a little bit, focus on one thing, and then I find that I actually get drowsy after I read a chapter or two and. You know, I shut it and go to bed. You know, don't check my phone. It's, like it's interesting you mentioned the the fact that the Kindle can only do one thing uh, or the book obviously only is that one story. I think sometimes I underestimate the relationship I have to physical objects or to physical spaces and the way that that affects the functionality. So, I mean, when I got a, a Kindle uh, Paperwhite, my ability to read while concentrating is much, much greater than when I was trying to read on my iPhone or my iPad and not because of the screen size or anything else. Uh, and actually just reading a book, it's even better because my Kindle still has a library of books and I'm like tempted to go look at other books. Well, <laughs> but it's the relationship I have to this phone. I'm so accustomed to using it for so many different things like I check the sports scores or do little things like that that are kind of a fun and exciting um, quick thing to do that takes a few minutes or play some Scrabble or, you know, check my email or Twitter or whatever. And so I, when I pick it up, all these associations in my mind start kicking up like, oh, I'm about to get a quick hit of information about something um, or solve a quick problem or send an email or whatever it might be. And when I pick that thing up, and I'm trying to read on it and take my mind into that sort of longer term space, it's really hard to do because I've developed a sort of subconscious 
expectation about this device and just switching to something whose designated purpose, who <laughs> now I'm personifying it, switching to something that's designated purpose is just books, reading books. It makes it so much easier. Um, and that's just something I've started to discover recently. I mean, even like being in a certain room where you normally do certain types of activities, it's easier to do those activities in that room, um, than in other rooms and, and vice versa. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. I, um, I, I noticed that I, I always have a, I have a pretty big standing desk over here. I have a couple screens on it. And sometimes when I, when I really need to dig into something and you know, read some documentation or actually even writing, I, my, even the presence of my second screen and the possibilities that that offers just drives my <laughs> brain crazy. So I unplug all that stuff. I go over to my kitchen table. I take the seat that basically faces the wall that, you know, there's nothing else around and just start plugging away right there. And after an hour, you know, I, I get done what I needed to, I'll come back to my desk, but you're right. There's, I, I love technology and I'm not going to be one of those people who swears it off for sure. I mean, that's how I make my livelihood and I'm just so interested in it, but we have to be very, we have to be aware of how it's affecting our productivity. And then, you know, the, the key thing is what decision you make at that point in time. So we can either say, oh, we're going to swear this off and not use it. Well, that's going to take us 10 or 20 steps back. What you do is say, okay, well, I need to use technology in this way for this purpose in this other way for this other purpose and just be aware of that. Um, are you a goal setter? Do you have like, you know, what is, what does Chuck Grimmett want to be doing in five years or do you not no. approach life that way? I mean, I, I do for very short term things like, you know, at the, at the beginning of the day, I have a, a little notebook that I write stuff down in and I, I make a list of like what's going on today so that I remember what's going on today. Let's say like my, these coworkers are out, Amanda and I are doing these things after work. Um, and then I, I make a short to-do list and I say, well, you know, these are the main things that I absolutely need to get done today. I don't write all the things that I have to do. I just do the you know, the top high level things that it, this will be a successful day if I get these things done. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't do, I don't write this down, but I have a very good idea at the beginning of the week of some stuff that I want to get done that week, either work or side projects, things that I'm learning. But beyond that, I, I find it very hard to plan, you know, six, eight months in advance. I mean, our, our life has like radically changed within an eight month time period. So it's like we can set some vague goals and yes, we could take some steps to try to achieve them, but I don't, you know, I don't get caught up with the idea of, Oh, in five years we must be doing this. You know, we, we must have kids. We must have a house. I mean, yeah, we have the general understanding that we want kids within five years, but we're not going to make that a, a strict deadline because, you know, we'll see where Amanda's at with her job. We'll see where I'm at. We'll see where we're physically living. See how we, that, we, where your SCOBY is at, how it's, you know, how it's growing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, you know, we'll see what our parents are doing, stuff like that. Um, I will say that, you know, we, we actually did try to plan something out recently and kind of got, got messed up with that in that, um, that, that made me a little bit depressed for a couple months, but you know, then I, th I think that what I try to remind myself is 
I don't really know where I'm going to be one year from now. Last year at this time, if you would have asked me what I was going to be doing, what kind of projects I was going to be working on right now, I, I, my guess would have been very far off. Hmm. And that I, I don't think that decisions that we make about our life are you know, necessarily going to take us down one track that we're never going to be able to recover from. Like, you know, I, I'm really big on let's do right now. Let's pick something right now. Let's run with it. I'm not saying just like pick something at random, pick something to the best of your ability, but don't stress about it. Run with it. And if in three, four months that doesn't work out, you know, cut your losses and move over to something else. So, uh, do you think we can in five minutes or less touch on something that you brought up to me, uh, in a podcast recently, TK and I talked about coding, whether or not coding is a skill that will increase in value and everyone's going to need to know it, or if it will be a skill that a very small number of people need to know because platforms will be developed where you don't actually need to know how to code in order to build software. You think we can, you think we can touch on that in just a couple minutes? Sure. All right. I mean, first I, Absolutely love Fridays with TK. It's probably my favorite segment on your podcast. Every Friday, I'm as soon as that stuff's posted, I'm tuning in and I take notes every week. You, that's that's an incredible segment. I love you guys. Oh, thank you. Um, my my thoughts there are that I I don't know why you're necessarily drawing those absolutes um, that either everyone's going to need to know it or only a really tiny small amount of people. Um, coding is a skill, right? And it's for me, coding is not necessarily about that actual language that you're learning to write, but rather learning how code works, how code functions. And it, you know, it primarily functions just like logic functions. And if you know how code functions, that makes your ability to problem solve technology a lot better. So if you learn how certain things are executed, uh, how then you'll have a general understanding about how certain programs work. And so when you encounter a problem, instead of just saying, oh, this doesn't work, blah, 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 you might be able to actually solve that by saying, digging down a little bit, what's causing this, what's causing this, what's causing this, and solve that. So like for me, I know a couple languages pretty solid, but I don't know every language. I know generally how code works. So I could pull up some sort of code I spend, you know, 20 minutes getting used to the syntax doesn't necessarily mean I'll be able to write it on the spot, but I'll at least be able to read what I see in my screen and kind of figure out what it's doing and where it's going. Do you, th and I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I write code because I'm decent at it. And right now it tends to be, you know, a skill that solves some problems that I face, but you know, if, uh, I've actually, you know, for for websites, instead of telling people they need to write code and build it themselves, I, I love to shove people over to WordPress.com or over to Squarespace because, you know, why why learn something that you're going to use once and you don't really want to know? Um, I, I find it better to, you know, teach people, you know, this is generally how some of these things work. This is a tool that you need to, you know, that you can be able to turn to, but you know, I'm not willing to say that no one's going to need to know it, uh, or everyone's going to be need to know it. Um, there's always going to be that short group, of the small group of people who's interested in it. But I think that 
the people in the middle, it will be very helpful for them to understand how code functions and why we use it, but not necessarily know the deep down fundamentals of it. See, and that's where I'm, I'm still not sold on that in terms of the long term anyway, now, you know, five, 10 years. Uh, I think that will continue to be true beyond that. I think about all the analogies I see around me, like um, let's, let's just take physical products. Uh, there was a time where knowing how to repair or build uh, a chair was actually really valuable for almost every homeowner because you bought one set of chairs and um, you know, you, you, if you had another, you know, you needed another one, you maybe built it or bought it. If one broke, you, you wanted to know how to fix it or at least know enough that if you took it to someone to fix it, they wouldn't rip you off. Now I buy a set of aluminum, you know, uh, patio furniture or whatever it's made out of from Walmart. And I just, I don't care when one breaks, I throw it away. I'm going to buy a new set every couple of years because the price has come down so much. There's, there's literally no reason that the vast majority of people have. And then hence most of them don't to know anything about, um, furniture repair or construction, uh, or like, you know, handy, handiwork, craftsmanship, things like that. Now they can, if it's a, if it's a hobby, but it went from something that if you were a homeowner, it was a really valuable skill to know to, uh, you know, like shop class and things like that. It's like, oh, this is really important. And it probably was to a thing where it's almost irrelevant for the vast majority of people. And I, I, I don't know, I feel like it's hard for me to imagine coding, not also moving in that direction. I mean, I, I think it's going to get to a point where you can get by just fine without knowing it, but you might be a little better off knowing it, just as with the chairs. I mean, it's pretty easy for you to drive down to Walmart and get another set of chairs, right? But I, th I think it might actually be somewhat valuable for some people to learn how to actually repair those chairs. I think it makes you <clears> – <throat> I don't want to say that it, like, it makes you a better – person or anything like that, but I, you might actually be somewhat better off by learning how to repair some of those things rather than just going and buying a new one. At least you'll get some sort of self-fulfillment out of that. Okay. So, so the, there's, there's sort of an intrinsic value you think in the same with, um, sort of what you're saying about cooking and, and maybe this applies to your generalist approach to life, um, more broadly, there's some intrinsic value in, understanding how things work and being able to do things yourself, even if it's not worth it most of the time to fix your own car, knowing that you could or learning how is sort of a, a something that makes you a better version of yourself. Well, there is no intrinsic value. Yeah, I'm going to go with Menger and Bumbleberg here and say that all value is subjective. And the, the subjectivity that I have there is that I get enjoyment and I get fulfillment out of knowing that I can do these things rather than being totally dependent on someone else doing it for me. Uh, and I think that, that that could apply to a lot of other people as well. So so this is a great um, sort of way to, to tap into the final question I wanted to ask you. What do you think in terms of – do you think specialization – is overrated? Should, should you not seek to just master one thing and be the greatest at it? Um, do you think being a generalist is overrated, overemphasized? Do you think more people should try to master one or a small number of things? Um, or do you think it's completely based on individual preference and there's not really any general rule about whether being a generalist or being a specialist is, is preferable? 
I don't think there's a general rule there. What I like to stick with is if you're if you're going to do something, you probably should learn how to do that thing pretty well. I like having you know super specialists around. That's how we you know that's how we get great leaps forward in technology. That's how we great get great literature. Um, I mean, if Stephen King is spending all day fixing his car, he's not going to write some pretty sweet books, you know? Um, so it's, it's definitely better, probably better for the world that he sends his car to a mechanic. Um, I think that if you get enjoyment out of learning new things and learning how to do those things well, you, there's no reason why you shouldn't do that. Um, and I, you know, if, if you don't like, if you find that it's easier for you to be a super specialist in one field, than learn a little bit about a lot of fields, then, you know, then be, go become a specialist. If you, if you, your mind is better suited for learning some, you know, a little bit about everything and, you know, being pretty good at tying those things together, then go do that. I mean, do what's do what's going to make you happy. Do what you're best at. I'm pretty good at being a generalist, though I am a specialist in some small fields. Um, but that's just the way my brain works. Chuck, give us a couple pieces of uh, recommended content. Anything uh, to read, to listen to. Okay, so I think I'm going to take a slightly different spin on this than some of your other hosts. I want I want you guys, you listeners, to Think of a skill sometime in the next four or five days that you want to learn. Schedule one hour to dig through the basics of that. And I mean focused learning, not just clicking through a couple websites with Facebook open and another tab next to you. Spend a focused hour learning, taking a couple notes, then come up with a one day, like a weekend style project that you can dig through and apply those things. If you don't have a full weekend, that's fine. Pick, you know, a project that's going to take two evenings of time, maybe three evenings of time over a couple of days that it needs to be just a little outside the scope of what you know, so that you can learn while you go through it and report back and tell us what happens. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's a great, uh, that's a great challenge. Chuck, this has been a blast. You can go to chuckgrimmett.com Eat, uh, cooklikechuck.com and you can also check out the Snack Time podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Isaac. It's been fun.